0: Before we jump into the episode, here's a quick disclaimer about our content. The Remote Real Estate Investor Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice. The views, opinions, and strategies of both the hosts and the guests are their own and should not be considered as guidance from Roofstock. Make sure to always run your own numbers, make your own independent decisions, and seek investment advice from licensed professionals.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Albaum. And today we have what has now become known as a tradition on the podcast. We are doing our Halloween horror story episode. We did this last year. It was a lot of fun. We're doing it again this year. So I guess now it's technically a tradition. We hope to do it forward uh, every Halloween going forward. So we have a couple spooky horror stories from some other investors we're going to be sharing with you. So let's get into it. All right, Heath. So tell us your spooky Halloween story.
2: Yeah, so as a as somebody who's been investing in properties now for around 20 years, I've had my my share of horror stories um, from people dying in buildings to apparent ghosts that are haunting uh, properties while I'm living in them in the middle of a renovation. But the one I'm going to focus on here was, was probably, I would say, the, the scariest thing that happened to me in my early days of investing. So this is back in, I think it was 2004, when I was remodeling a garage on the first single family rental that I was living in and house hacking at the same time, you know, 17 years ago. When I bought the building, it was a bit run down, needed a fair amount of work. I was going through, you know, remodeled the, the top floor, um, found a contractor who was pretty solid. And he had a foreman on the job who I became pretty close with because he was there you know, all the time and I was living in the building at the time of the remodel. And once that was done, my very next project that I needed to do was to remodel the detached garage. So it was a detached garage that had some serious uh, water issues. Whenever it rained, water was like pouring into the walls and there was a fair amount of rot and a significant amount of work needed to be completed. At the time, some of the bids just came in a bit higher than I would have liked and I didn't have the bandwidth to, to move the the work for it. So, um, I kind of put it on hold and I don't know, it was like six months later, the guy who was the foreman on the earlier job came by and he said, Hey, I know you wanted to remodel your garage. I, and Hey, I, I just got my license. I'm, I'm, I'm now a GC and I'm starting, I'm you know, kicking off my own business. And looks like you haven't done the work. I was driving bios in the neighborhood. I'd love to bid it. Um, I can do a great job. So I said, sure. And we, we you know, we got the work started. And this was one of his early jobs as well. He he ended up charging me a fair amount up front. I probably paid like 70% of the work uh, or 70% of the bid up front before really getting deep into it. And they ended up demoing. um, He had a couple other guys who he he brought on site. They demoed the entire garage, knocked out the roof, knocked everything out. And next thing I know, they just stopped showing up. (laughs) So here I am, you know, in this... In this house that I'm living in, you you know, there's just like debris everywhere. Um, We're about to hit the rainy season again, and this whole thing has opened up. There's crap everywhere. They didn't even really have a dumpster and remove anything. They just kind of disappeared, and I didn't really understand what had happened. So I start, you know, I'm trying to call him. I don't, I I don't get a response. I tried to reach out to people who I knew who knew him. No response. And then finally, a friend of mine said, "Hey, have you looked at the newspaper? um, See what's going on? I think this is your guy." And it turned out. That, he, that the contractor who I was using ended up being arrested under suspicion of being the 580 sniper. Now, there was somebody who was sitting on top of a mountain, you know over, over the Interstate 580 and shooting cars as they drove by. and it turned out that that person had, I believe, was driving a white pickup truck, and maybe he matched the description of my contractor, but they ended up finding, you know my contractor in a white pickup truck, with a with a firearm in the vehicle. So, so, so hey, this guy matches the description and, and they arrested him. And then, because they arrested him, um, they ended up going to his house and at his house, they ended up finding some a couple other people living at his house who maybe one of them had violated parole. So, so these were the guys who were the ones who were doing the work at my, my place and they found a whole bunch of bomb-making materials. I, again, this is this is what's in the news, right? So, you know, from my perspective, he, he was just a normal contractor, he happened to have a car, he happened to have a, you know, it's all, all fine. And, and he happened to have a lot of pipes and stuff at his house, because he's a contractor, and he does work. But the news blew this thing up into like, yeah, they, they arrested basically my GC and, and a couple people he was living with. And it was a disaster. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I was like, hey, how do I move this thing forward that this place is a mess, there's no way I'm getting my money back. Luckily, I did vet him beforehand. And I had work. You know, with him, and he was a, a GC who was licensed and bonded. So I reached out to the contractor state license board in California, and, and again, for any investor out there, I definitely recommend do your diligence before you hire a contractor. Make sure they're bonded, make sure they're insured, all that good stuff. So he was all of the above. I reached out, and the contractor state license board, you know, they they gave me all this paperwork, and they're basically like, "Yeah, hey, you're never supposed to pay more than ten percent upfront. You really shouldn't have. You really shouldn't have paid all this money upfront before the work started." But they went through all the details. You know, did an investigation. One, one again, I can't verify this, but one of the people from the CSLB basically said that they were afraid to go and interview him directly because he was being held somewhere in jail, and they didn't really want to have to do an interview in, in jail um, to get his side of the story. So, in some ways, I, I think he really got screwed. I think, I think it was a. I, I never followed up, but I, I, I highly doubt that he was the actual person who was doing this he was a good guy I worked with him on an earlier project and when all this came out he didn't really have an opportunity to defend himself or anything but the CSLB did their investigation and I ended up getting refunded for the portion that I paid him that was un- incomplete and ended up finishing the work with somebody else but that experience of going through the process um, having my you know my job abandoned on um, one of the first bigger uh, jobs that I had ever done before and then hearing the news that, that he had been arrested for for, for a pretty serious, and very scary crime. It was intense. And it definitely was a that was sort of my first big horror story as a real estate investor.
0: All right, Mike, what is your horror story?
1: All right. So this horror story involves actually my very first property that I ever purchased way back in the day, which seems like a lifetime and a half ago. So it was my first set of tenants, actually, that I ever had in my first property. And I was I bought the property and it was vacant and it was turnkey, it was ready to go. And I was just hounding my property manager. We got to get her rented. We got to get it rented. We got to get it rented. And the timing was weird because I think I closed like in November or so. And in Southern California, the weather isn't amazing as it normally is. And so it did a little bit of a slowdown in the holiday months. And I just kept hounding her and hounding her. We got to get some. We got to get some. We got to get some. Because I was so terrified. So she says, okay, I have this. I have this tenant. So they applied. It's a mother and son. Uh, they aren't as qualified as I'd like them to be. There's a little bit, a few kind of, demerits here and there, but what do you think? And I said, good, get him in there. I don't care. We just got to get someone paying rent. So we got him in there. And that was the beginning of the end. So fast forward a couple of months, I get a phone call from my property manager. The police have been called numerous times on these folks. The When the mom goes to work, the son is partying. When they're both home, the mom is yelling at neighbors, making threats to neighbors. Just like everything you don't want to hear about your tenants doing So then fast forward a couple months and I went on a European vacation with a buddy of mine. And when I landed in Europe, I got a Facebook message from the tenant, from the son. And he writes me and he goes, hey, I just want to let you know your property manager is a criminal. She's doing all these things. She's robbing you blind, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, oh my God. So keep in mind, I've known this property manager. She's a good family friend. She's kind of who helped me get involved with real estate. Um, my my father knew her for forever. So she's just a, like a good human being above and beyond being a great family friend. And so I'm like, there's no way that, the, you know, my property manager, she's robbing me blind. I think it's just a, a tenant who's pissed off. And I said, thank you for letting me know. I appreciate it. Please, you know, communicate through the property manager. I'm not trying to get involved here in in a, in a much more polite way. I communicated that. And he was just writing me constantly. I don't know, I don't know how we got a hold of my contact information. But he somehow figured out who I was, found me on Facebook and, and started writing me in. You're, you're so stupid. She's robbing you blind. She's a criminal. We can't deal with her. She's she's trying to kick us out. All this. Stuff. I'm like, oh, my gosh. All the, all the meanwhile, I'm forwarding this to my property manager. I mean, like, hey, these people are are bashing your name up and down the street. I don't know who else they're talking to. But like, I know that you're a wonderful person. She goes, oh, my God, I'm so pissed. I'll take care of it. So I don't know if I mentioned, but they also stopped paying rent. That was, that was a caveat to all this. They stopped paying rent. And so my, my property manager went to evict them and then they just weren't leaving and it was this whole thing. So uh, fast forward a few more weeks, maybe it was a few more months, my property manager calls me and she goes, Michael, the house is trashed. There's human fecal matter smeared on the walls as they left the property. So just like all the bad stuff you hear about like happened all at once and on my first go at this uh, owning rental property thing, So I said, you know, what do we do? And she goes, well, we already kept it. We're keeping their deposit, obviously. She says, you can go after them in small claims court because it's about $15,000 in damage. And I was like, yes, great. Let's do that. So needless to say, if anyone has had experience with small claims court, they might be laughing to themselves right now thinking, oh, Michael, how naive of you thinking you're going to go get $15,000 from someone in small claims court. But we tried anyhow, because I didn't know any better. And we the judgment, we basically won the judgment, these folks didn't even appear, they didn't even show up in court. So the the date got moved, pushed out again. And then they didn't show up again. And so basically, we made our case, my property manager went, I paid her for her time, we won the judgment. Okay, great. There's a very big difference between winning a judgment, and actually collecting on that judgment. So now we have to go find these people. And and start to try to collect money for them. So now this person reaches back out to me again. I can't believe you did this. We don't have any money. We're so poor, this, that, and the other thing. And so I'm like, I just don't even respond to these people. We, my my property manager finally reaches an agreement with these people. And I think they paid like $3,000 or $4,000 over the course of like two or three years in increments. And I was like, it's like you, you, you spend so much money on like my property manager going to court and then just the court legal fees and the filing fees. And it's just such a headache and it occupies so much mental bandwidth and the money is gone. So it's a, a sunk cost at that point. But I was just so frustrated and so mad at myself and at these people, at myself, because I, I went against my better judgment and I really pushed my property manager to get someone in there. And she said it was against her better judgment too, but I was so forceful uh, and so scared that we just got somebody in there and it ended up costing me big time. So I think the big, big, big takeaway for me is you got to listen to your gut and if something doesn't feel right, if you're if you're seeing red flags, listen to those things uh, and and investigate those things further and don't be so short-term sighted because that's what cost me in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny that, I mean, these stories are really funny when we look back at them but I'm sure it was a nightmare as you were going through. Yeah,
1: very funny, Pierre. (laughs) But it's
0: interesting to me that this being your first property, it didn't scare you out of going back into more.
1: Yeah, it probably should have, truth be told. Um, It would have been very easy, and I don't think anyone would have have, uh, knocked me forward or made fun of me or, or anything of that sort. But I think I was too naive to know that I should walk away. My property manager said, this isn't typical. This is very abnormal. And so let's just try to do better with the next one. And I said, okay, that sounds right. good. So I, part of me is glad that I I don't think it really hit me about how uh, frustrating it was. And part of it too, is that the process took so long. So everyone listening is getting it in a five minute compressed version, but this is happening over months and even years. And so to get to the end result, I had already done other stuff. I had already made other investments. And so it was, it was, which I think is great. It made it tougher for me to just walk away from it all saying, oh man, that sucked. I guess this whole investing thing is, is a kaput idea because I was having success with these other investors. That makes sense. So again, just word to the wise, listen, listen to your gut, keep an eye out for those red flags, be, be aware of what you're getting into a small claims court and uh, just go hard in the paint. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, you got it. All right, Paul, so take it away with your Halloween
3: horror story. Man, did I ever tell you guys what my favorite investment was? I don't think so, no. My favorite investment is mobile home parks. I love investing in mobile home parks, and I only wish I would have joined Sam Zell, America's most successful billionaire real estate investor, decades ago in discovering this amazing asset class, mobile home parks. Sam Zell has over 155,000 mobile home park pads in his company and he's a billionaire and he's just it's just a, an asset class that's been long overlooked and mostly scorned or ignored. I know of people who have mobile home parks. They say they used to go to parties and people would say, "What do you do?" <laughs> "A mobile home park." "Okay, where where's the hors d'oeuvres?" But um My least favorite investment on the planet is mobile homes. Mobile homes are my, like, I've got three horror stories with mobile homes. I wish I would have quit after the first one because, man, what a nightmare. And so I'm going to tell you one of those mobile home horror stories today, if that's okay with you guys.
1: Yeah, it sounds great.
3: Yeah, so I was, I had a friend, uh, I I had this idea. Wouldn't it be cool to renovate some of those, like a mobile home and like put it on a lot and, you know, set it up and then rent it, lease it as a home, you know, put a permanent foundation on, et cetera, et cetera. So I got a double wide and it had been somewhat trashed. It only, it was only like three years old, but mobile home. Tenants aren't always the very best tenants, and sometimes they don't take a lot of ownership. They don't take a lot of pride in their place. And so I decided I was going to somehow be smart and do a lease to own on it so it wouldn't just be a rental. And so I got this mobile home double-wide and put it about an hour and a half from my house, found a lot there. It already had well, septic, driveway, set it up. And, and then I started getting friends who were between jobs. I just happened to know a couple of people between jobs to start renovating it. Now I found out something when I tried to build some houses, I found out that it's not smart to build a house. If you don't know how to tighten the doorknob on your own house. And that's why I think people, you know, really appreciate companies like Roofstock, you know, who have experts do this kind of stuff for them. But, uh, Anyway, I had these couple guys who were doing the renovations. They were driving an hour and a half from Roanoke, Virginia, way down into the sticks of Southwest Virginia. And they, and for some reason, this thing took like a year to renovate. I don't know how you can take a year to renovate a mobile home. But uh, yeah, somehow it did. And so we finally got somebody moved in. And we actually made it into a lease to own. And so it was a couple who had just moved from a state or two away, and they signed a rent-to-own agreement. And basically, it said that they would make payments, rental payments, for three years. And then they hopefully, their credit would be to the right place where they could just buy the house. I thought, okay, not bad. So I was pretty excited about this, and they started making payments. And they made payments for one year two years three years and then they just kept making payments and so i was kind of hands-off busy with my other business i didn't pay much attention the payments just kept coming in and so finally i reached out to the lady and i said hey you were supposed to close on this you know rent to own and she said yeah we just we couldn't get our credit score to the right place so do you mind if we just keep renting till we do And of course, you know, when you got a good tenant who's only missed maybe like one payment in three years, you want to keep them. So I said, sure, I'll work with you. So this went on year four, year five, year six, year seven, year eight. And they had fortunately made a good number of payments, you know, as far as a percentage of what I had in it at that point. But then I didn't. I didn't get a payment. And then I missed a second and I missed a third. And I realized, wait, something's going on. And so I called her and she said, yeah, we broke up. And I moved back to Baltimore. And I thought you wouldn't mind. I went ahead and leased it. I subleased it to a Section 8 tenant. And I said, you went through the effort of getting a Section Eight sublease, and you didn't—you didn't call me or anything. She said, "No." She goes, "I'm like two states away now. Can you go check on it?" And I said, "Oh boy." So I got there, and it was like a war zone. This place that so I'd only checked on once or twice in eight years. It was like unbelievable. I don't even know what happened. The people were gone. All the appliances were missing. There were scratches and scrapes all over the wall. And I looked at the evidence on the floor, and let me say it was disgusting. I tell you, I I mean, this story, I don't know who was involved exactly, but I know it involved a dog or dogs. I know it involved a baby or babies, and I know it involved alcohol, more likely alcoholics. And this was, it was unbelievable. I don't even know how you could do this much damage to your own enemy. It was like some kind of war criminal camp. And like, they just went around for like, what would possess somebody? who wasn't even paying their rent at all to want to destroy someone else's property. I never met these people. I never knew their name, but I went in there and I calculated, you know, okay, so this place was in like not that bad a shape eight years ago when it took us a year to renovate it. I think this would probably take 117 years to renovate right now. So I did the calculations. I actually had a contractor out there, and everybody was just like shaking their head. This is beyond salvaging. And so I ended up paying, I think it was like $1,000 to have it hauled away to the junkyard. And I ended up selling this lot. By the way, I was supposed to make $60,000, $63,000 maybe when it closed. And I ended up selling the lot for $15,000. That's my Halloween horror story. Like I said, I've had four mobile homes over the years, and three were disasters uh, at almost this scale. And the fourth one was my mom's. But seriously, yeah, uh, I really don't like leasing mobile homes. It sounds like a great idea on paper. It even sounds like a great idea to get these used mobile homes and push them into a park if you can find a mobile home park and then sub or you know lease them to tenants and then you're the tenant of the park. I actually did that once and had multiple like it was trash this old home was trash multiple times. We finally hauled it off to the dump as well and so not a great business especially if you don't like being a landlord which i don't is there a moral of the story other than don't invest in mobile homes if you're going to manage your own properties you've got to be intense about it you've got to you know give them the impression you know i'm not taking any crap from you i'm not going to you know you're you're going to pay on time and in full i'm going to evict the day you don't i mean I I think that I've come to the conclusion that with real estate, and this is controversial, and I don't think a lot of people are going to like what I'm going to say, but I've concluded that you either need to be fully involved, intensely involved, treat it like a business, actively managing it, or you've got to completely outsource it to an expert. I think a lot of folks, and I talk to investors every week, and i talked to quite a number of investors who say that when they try to go in and do something on the side like they try to build up like this dentist i was talking about talking to he said yeah i'm building a 20 home portfolio to replace my income and i'm so excited about replacing it and uh and then he took a deep sigh and he said but kind of exhausted talking talking to painters between Oral surgeries and screening tenants in the evening. And I'm getting tired already, and I'm only on house number three. And uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I talk to a lot of people like that. And so I think it's really important that you find someone to outsource this type of stuff to if you're focused on either a great career or hopefully a family or retirement it's it's hard to juggle that and i hear frequently people say man this has just become like a second job and sometimes the returns aren't as what you know aren't as high as they expected either so i think it's really important that people find somebody to outsource to if they want to get in real estate or do it full time
1: it's so important for folks that are self managing to really look at the the roi on their time and what they're actually paying themselves or what they're saving as compared to outsourcing for me, that 10% that I'm paying every month is like the best 10% I've ever paid to buy back my time. Exactly.
3: Totally agree. Yep. That's awesome. a really good point.
1: Paul, this was great as always. Thank you so much. And we uh, we look forward to talking with you soon.
3: Man, it's always great to see you guys. Appreciate you. And uh, thanks for having me on again. Happy Halloween. Thanks, Paul. Happy Halloween.
1: Alrighty, everyone. That was our episode. I hope that these stories just provide you with some great fodder and some takeaways, lessons learned not to scare you away from real estate investing, but rather to help you learn from our mistakes going forward. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We look forward to seeing you on the next one. And as always, happy investing.